Well, I know what you're thinking. I can see that look in your eye. What is he going to do with all this? Here's the passage we don't read at Christmas, the one we rarely preach. And, you know, frankly, how many of us in our Bible readings just skip these genealogies when we get to them in Genesis and Chronicles and Ezra and other places? If Matthew had consulted us as his editors, we'd have said, put it in an appendix. (laughs) Get going at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. That's a story. John begins his gospel majestically. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and so on. Mark gets down to business immediately, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Luke draws us in to his account with his assurance of a careful investigation and an orderly account. Matthew begins with a list of 42 names. Jesus' coming was the great game-changer of history. And here, in the first section of the first gospel, on the first page of the New Testament, Matthew gives us a genealogy. And, you know, even ancient authors, I suspect, knew perfectly well the importance of putting attention-grabbing, important material at the beginning of the speech or the book. So the question for us this morning, I think, is what are we missing if we skim over these 17 uh, verses? Today we're beginning a little series in the run-up to the coronation in a few weeks' time. And already out there in the journalism and the blog sphere, things are bristling with a strange blend of enthusiasm and cynicism about the 6th of May. Millions of us will watch a ceremony that purports to be largely unchanged since 973 when in Bath Abbey, Dunstan, the Archbishop of Canterbury, crowned Edgar, King of England. And the coronation liturgy, then and now, rightly looks beyond any earthly kingship to the rule and authority of the King, Jesus, who is our focus in this little series. There's an early moment in the coronation service which is technically called the recognition. When the sovereign is introduced as the rightful monarch and acclaimed by the congregation. King Charles is there only because of his lineage, who he really is. He's his late mother's eldest son. Her father, unexpectedly, was King George VI. That's how it happens. As in ancient Israel, genealogy matters. It tells us who he is, why he's there as king. It's culturally, religiously, politically significant. It weeds out pretenders. Here, friends, is Matthew's recognition moment. Here is why Jesus warrants our acclamation. Matthew's is a gospel full of kingly significance. It's packed with Jesus as king. The king revealed, the king rejected, the king returning. And in these opening verses, Matthew sets the scene for all that's to come in his gospel under those massive heads. 
If Jesus is to be that king, it has to be established beyond doubt that he has the right to reign. That he stands in the royal line. That he has the pedigree. That he's the legal heir to King David's throne with all that that signified. Matthew here is making the legal case for Jesus. And where Luke emphasizes the royal blood descent, Matthew here emphasizes the legal line. Because Jewish people were tenacious about their pedigrees. They kept lists. They stored them carefully. They consulted them if they wanted to know who was who and who had what rights and what authority. Lists matters. They provided a person not only with their history, but also their identity. So in his first 17 verses, Matthew answers the question, our question, surely, who is this who's coming? Have we in Jesus got the right person? Is he the true Messiah? Well, that's the question that Matthew, I think, is trying to answer. He knows that Jesus didn't just spring from nowhere in verse 18. No, he has a background. You can trace the family tree of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. And even, in fact, to Adam. Though Adam's not explicitly mentioned here, Luke's genealogy does that. The very first verse of the New Testament reads literally an account, the book of the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. And a Jewish reader would immediately have made the connection and been reminded of the early chapters of Genesis where exactly that phrase appeared at several points. Here were unmistakable echoes of a new beginning, a new creation, if you like, a a genesis of all things, open now to everybody in Jesus. Here, says Matthew, in in verse 1 of his gospel, in 16 English words, 8 Greek words, here is the big story of the Bible so far, told through its key characters of Adam, Abraham, David, and Jesus. That's the big story. It's all there in those four names. We live in a fairly rootless culture. Many of us in our own families can't go back for more than three or four generations. And yet we're fascinated, aren't we, by who we are and where we're from and sites like Ancestry.com and TV programs like Who Do You Think You Are uh, confirm that lineage, who we are, matters, background matters. President Biden's visit this week to Ireland encouragingly reminded me that 30 million Americans wish they were Irish. (laughs) And for Matthew's Jewish readers, it was vitally important to know where the Messiah came from. He didn't come out of nowhere. The lineage that could produce the Messiah was of supreme importance because it's all about his genuineness. That's what Matthew's doing here. Now, there's a wonderful symmetry to all this. Verse 17 is the summary statement. Do you see that? Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. It all feels a little too neat, doesn't it? Did did you think that as you read it, uh, a little bit slick? 
No, he, this isn't a comprehensive list. It is a selective list. There are some people here who are obviously left out. Matthew is being, in a phrase of Chris Wright's, deliberately schematic with a theological intention. By his selective pattern, he's underscoring a specific purpose. He's telling in three historic blocks, three critical events, the amazing story of God's faithfulness and his intention to bless all the nations of the earth. First, block one, verse two, God chooses a 75-year-old man from the chaotic mass of humanity and makes a huge, huge promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would have a son, Isaac, and that his descendants would become a great nation and that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. So expectations were high, put it mildly. But, you know, what happens all too soon? It becomes clear Abraham was not the seed of the woman anticipated in that proto-evangelium of Genesis 3.15, the one who will overcome the serpent and set all things right again in God's creation. He wasn't the one. He's far from perfect. He makes mistakes. It goes wrong. But at least the search is narrowed. The promised one will be one of his descendants. Second block, verse 6. God made another huge promise, this time to David. 2 Samuel 7.16 Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Big stuff. Chapter 7 verse 12 of 2 Samuel The promise is to David and to his descendants to be on the throne of the kingdom forever. It's looking good. But again... Again, bafflingly, David and his descendants end in sin and failure, even as he is known for his faith and is called a man after God's own heart. Who can possibly be the royal son endowed with righteousness that the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 72, verse 1? The one whose name really will endure forever, through whom All the nations will be blessed and will call him blessed. Psalm 72 verse 17. There is, says God, going to be a king before whom all the kings of the earth will bow. Have have we ever seen such a king? How is this going to work? David and Solomon are long gone. Queen Victoria had a long reign. Queen Elizabeth had an even longer reign. But they're gone. They're gone. What has become of these huge promises? Did God's word somehow fail? Third block, verse 12, the exile, a low point in Israel's history. Disobedience has consequences, it always does. There's a cost, there's a judgment. We humans so often, don't we, refuse to believe that. We somehow think God won't do what he said he's going to do. And Israel was overrun and dragged into exile and decimated. God's own people experienced all that. 
And we know Psalm 137 so well. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. All God had promised seemed to have fallen away. No wonder the psalmist in Psalm 89 verse 49 could lament, Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? And so the Old Testament ends, the messianic promise unfulfilled, the scepter gone, David's kingdom apparently lost, prophecy ceased, and the world still waiting for closure and fulfillment. And I think that's the point of Matthew's lightning three times 14 generations, his tour of the Old Testament. The point is to make crystal clear, I think, that when God makes a promise, he will keep it. And he'll keep it when all the evidence around us suggests that he won't. Here's a family tree of new beginnings, of fresh start, of Genesis expectation, of recreation in Jesus. He is the one in whom all the promises of God come good. Wonderfully, says Matthew, we have the right person. It's the recognition moment. God is bringing about his purpose of rescuing our wayward world in his own way, in his own time, through his own son. The Old Testament tells the story which Jesus now completes. And the unsettling message of history, biblical history and experience, is that if God is going to fulfill his promises and preserve his royal line, It's not going to be on account of his people's righteousness. It's going to be in spite of his people's sinfulness. Now, we haven't time to unpack the 42 names and this uh, amazing genealogy and the historic details of all these names. There's not time for that this morning. I mean, it's just worth saying as we look at these names that the fact of so many names reminds us that this, this isn't some sort of fairy tale. This is a true story, real people, real events. But we don't need to delve too deeply into this to realize this list of names contains people we would probably not have put in the list. And all the commentators make the point, strikingly, that there are five women listed here. Verse 3, Tamar. Verse 5, Rahab and Ruth. Verse 6, Bathsheba, styled only here as Uriah's wife. And verse 16, Mary. And I mean, that in itself was unusual for genealogies, unheard of in royal genealogies, which were invariably completely male-dominated. Women weren't important. They had very few rights. They couldn't inherit property. They were considered unreliable in court. Pious Jewish male might have got up in the morning and begun the day by thanking God that he was not a woman or a Gentile. But what is significant, I think, in this list is not just their gender, but their lifestyles. 
Ruth wasn't a pure Jew. She was a Moabitess, a stranger to the covenant of Israel, a potential enemy. Moabites, you know, were the offspring of Abraham's nephew Lot when he committed incest with his two daughters. Ruth's people were polytheistic pagans. She was David's grandmother. A whole book of scripture takes uh, takes her name. You, You mean God includes strangers in his family? I need to think a little bit more about that, I think. Tamar is someone you'd not want to mention at all if she was your great-great-great-grandmother. It's all there in Genesis 38. It's a pretty torrid tale. She's the one, frankly, to airbrush out if you were going to airbrush anybody. It's complicated. She entered the messianic bloodline by deceiving her father-in-law, by dressing up as a prostitute, and produced by him those twins, Perez and Zerah, of verse 3. Hmm. Rahab was a professional prostitute, a sex worker in Jericho, a Gentile, worse still, a Canaanite. The lowest of the low, as far as any self-respecting Jew was concerned. Not a good look in the royal family. And Bathsheba, of course, was complicit in notorious adultery with King David, which later led to the murder of her husband. This was multi-level abuse, plain and simple. The child of the adultery died, as you remember. The second child was Solomon, who built the temple. It's hardly guest speaker at the Mother's Union sort of stuff. What a sorry, messed up family tree. And even Mary, verse 16. Well, she has her maternity confirmed. But paternity, as we'll see next week when we pick up the rest of the chapter, needs a little further careful unpacking. And the shadow, I suspect, of a dubious teenage pregnancy probably lingered lifelong over her and her son's reputation. Look, what a triumph of grace all this is. If Jesus has such individuals as his forebears, well, we shouldn't be surprised if he had such individuals as his followers. He takes away all the old reputations. Your past sin or abuse or injustice that you've suffered and the ways you've viewed yourself and others is not who you become in Christ. Matthew here is getting ready to introduce us to a gospel where we're going to meet the friend of sinners. Where we're going to meet someone who says, I didn't call to, come to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. Here's where Matthew sets all that up. He's encouraging us to realize that God's purposes are fulfilled in ways we would never imagine. That his plans include events we would never design. And that they include people who we would by nature exclude. 
But the extraordinary thing about grace is that the excluded are included. Only God does that. He lavishes grace to the undeserved and the unlikely and the despised. He loves making something beautiful out of something horrible. That, that's the speciality of grace. He loves to make things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Where have you heard that before? Romans 8.28. So back to these promises. How is God going to bless the nations? How is he going to do what he has promised? Well, the answer, of course, as you know, is in the coming of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. Who is the true king, the forever king to whom everyone will bow? Matthew's answer here is Jesus the Messiah, a different kind of king. Matthew wants us to see that here in his first chapter, in these extraordinary first 17 verses. The one who is anointed, not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. The one who wears a crown of thorns. The one who rides a donkey and who doesn't live in a palace. The one who slays not Goliath, but death. The one who conclusively ends exile and personal darkness and despair forever. The one who wins his bride, not by shedding another man's blood, but by spilling his own. The one who recreates and makes everything new. Well, what a great echo that was in Paul's verse from 2 Corinthians 1.20. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes, yes in Christ. The one who rules by grace. What a king. What a king. I want in my last few minutes of application to return to the question that I asked before. What do we miss if we just sort of skim over these first 17 verses? Five very quick headlines for your contemplation. Not in any particular order of importance. Here's the first. God's dealings are always with actual people and not ideal people. See, some of us, I think, get Christianity wrong in our heads. We sometimes think that God will include the good people and reject all the bad people. In fact, the Bible regards us all as bad people to varying degrees, some worse than others. We're all equally stuck before God, good and bad in the world's perspective. We all need a savior. That's why Jesus came, as we'll see next week. I know I am incredibly relieved that God deals with actual people and not ideal people. For believe me, I am no ideal person and I suspect you're not either. I doubt if there's anyone in the room who could tell me, who could fill me in on Azor or Akim of verse 12. Who, who are they? Why are they there? They're hardly big names. They're there because Jesus somehow identifies with them. They're nobodies who've become New Testament somebodies because he has identified with them. Here's a second uh, thought. God uses all the messy stuff to accomplish his purposes. So you can't read a chapter like this and look at some of these stories 
and conclude it's all clean, neat, organized, tidy, perfect. It's not. This is the genealogy of Jesus. (laughs) It's remarkable. It comes not just as a rebuke to human pride, but also, I think, as a gentle solace to whatever has gone wrong for us at the hands of human devastation and dysfunction. Maybe there's a failed marriage, or a wayward child, or unfulfilled potential, or financial mismanagement, or career disappointment, whatever it is. There is, I suspect, not one of us here who can't characterize chapters in our history as very bad news. But just remember the messy stuff needn't be outside God's purposes. It can't separate us from his love. Here's a third thought. God is not operating on our timetable. Promise to Abraham took two millennia to come to fruition in Jesus. They'd said it was never going to happen. And then it's a thousand years from David before great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, appeared. Emmanuel, God with us, can feel, well, a bit of a pipe dream sometimes, can't it, in the modern world? It can be hard just to keep believing. And then between Malachi and Matthew, there are 400 years of darkness and apparent silence before, just at the right time, Jesus came and died for sinners, just like us who felt no need of him. God doesn't stop working. The clock is running. It's in his hands. And sometimes in our discouragement in church life and the apparent lack of progress in politics and society and culture and peacemaking across the world and so on, we need to get a grip on this reality. God's timetable is not ours. He's in control. And Matthew's theological retelling of Jesus' lineage here reassures us that when God promises something, we can really take it to the bank. He redeems real people in history. Biblical lineages always remind us that God's word proves true. Here's a fourth thought. The family of Jesus contains some who were moral outcasts. It may come as a surprise to some of us to find an ancient genealogy like this has something to say to the hashtag Me Too generation. And the stories of Matthew's five women are stories of widowhood and second and third marriages and incest and prostitution and abuse of power, lying, murder, adultery, economic hardship, foreign exclusion... Profound misunderstanding. As well, of course, as in some cases, tenacious loyalty to God. Wonderful. What a selection of people. Jesus always welcomes people who are fiercely loyal to him. And Matthew's overview here reminds us that there is nothing of life's bitterness that cannot be woven into God's providential redemptive history for me or you. 
One level, we're all moral outcasts who need Jesus' redemption and renewal. He's the unmissable hero of Matthew's gospel story. And here, here is Matthew setting the scene. The important thing is our stories are not over yet. There are more chapters still to be written. And then finally, and I end with this, the family of Jesus was ethnically diverse. The family of Jesus includes all nations. The Jewish Messiah has Gentile blood. The church, you know, is the most... Diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual organization on the planet. And it's a little microcosm of it here. It's a wonderful privilege, which we enjoy day after day in the life of this church. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was a Hittite's wife. Tamar was probably a Syrian. Abraham was almost certainly an Arab. The joy of the church is a little bit like the genealogy of Jesus. It's made up of people we mightn't choose, having experiences we wouldn't want, and facing events we didn't plan. Now we know that Jesus, when he came, changed the course of history. Even thoughtful critics accept that. But the story's not over yet. He invites anyone who hasn't done so yet to add their names to the family record. That birth, which we'll come back to next week, can even now, 2,000 years later, still change the course of your whole life. And he can be your true king now and forever. May God, in his wonderful generosity and grace, make that so for each one of us here.